Welcome back, U.S. history fans. Today, we're going to be talking about progress. Actually, progressivism. But hey, I thought we could progress through this unit together. Ah, get it? Okay, yeah, let's move on. All right, so progressivism. All right, the principles and practices of those advocating progress, change, or reform, especially in political matters. So that's going to be one of the key terms in the progressivism unit. Go figure. All right, so we're going to be talking about a lot of change during this unit and just uh, kind of what's going on in America. Because remember, our last unit was all about industrialization, which is a pretty big change for America. Well, there's more changes going on. So we talked a little bit about it in our last unit. It's going to be continuing into this one. Um, and especially one of the areas we're going to be talking about is urban reform. And just to kind of give you a little definition kind of stuff going along with urban reform. Urban reform. Dedicated men and women of middle class background moved into the slums and established settlement houses. They hoped to improve slum life through programs of self-help. Many wives and daughters of the new middle class would hire domestic servants to maintain their households so they could get involved with this urban reform. So we're seeing a lot of urban reform. We're seeing people who want change who want reform and so forth, and they're kind of going into the slums trying to change things from the bottom up, so to speak. And a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about, these changes, we're going to see a change in alcohol, uh, uh, women's involvement in society, um, education reforms, uh, helping out poor from all aspects, um, prison reform, and also environmental reform. So let's talk about alcohol first. Now, the alcohol reform that we're going to be talking about now is going to be an ongoing reform, and it's actually going to go all the way into the Prohibition time, which that's going to come later on, 1920s style. So um, this is kind of laying the groundwork for even some future units. So kind of remember some of this stuff. But anyhow, during this time, a lot of those urban reformers or just reformers in general saw alcohol abuse as a serious problem facing the nation in the early 1800s. Alcohol must go. So in the 1830s, just to give you an idea, Americans drank on average seven gallons per person each year. All right. And that's of, that's people of drinking age kind of thing. All right. Now, just to kind of give you a little, um, uh, idea of some of the, the ways people thought during this time. Here's a little quote from Lehman Beecher, probably mispronounced, but he was a preacher during this time and was probably one of the biggest opponents to alcohol. And so people who drank alcohol were disobeying God's law, according to him, and quote, quote here, neglecting the education of their families and corrupting their morals. I don't know, that just... That was my best, like, preacher voice. I don't know. And this kind of led us to this thing called the temperance movement. And it basically was designed to persuade others to limit alcohol consumption. Uh, and this is because they felt that alcohol led to criminal behavior, family violence, and poverty. And most of the temperance uh, movement was uh, female supporters during this time. And so, anyhow kind of moving along with uh, women getting involved with, you know, kind of stopping alcohol and so forth. Uh, we're, we're seeing much more involvement of women within just society in general, kind of being more outspoken with politics and reform and whatnot. Um, so, you know, women's educational opportunities 
prior to this time in the 1800s was very small and it is slowly expanding during this time it is only going to get better and we're going to be keep talking about that up until the 1920s units so um, Emma Willard um, is kind of a big name here for you she founded the Troy Female Seminary and it was the first college level school for women and this was in New York 1821 um, and during okay that was 1821 so kind of more 1830s women could study mathematics and philosophy um so and which society had long believed only men could master now they're kind of opening it up to to women to study so we are seeing kind of a more a push or an acceptance for women in education now education in general uh, we are seeing a push for public school now thomas jefferson uh was the first president um american leader i guess uh, during the time um, to really suggest creating a public school system. His ideas formed the basis for our education system that developed in the 19th century. So even before we really had full-blown public school, he was thinking about it and it didn't really get implemented until much later. So, but kind of up until the 1840s, roughly the time we're talking about here, the education system was highly localized and meaning it was mostly just like private schools only available to the really wealthy. And reformers kind of stepped in and they said, look, all children should gain the benefits of having education. So Horace Mann and Henry Bernard started a paper to bring information to the public. Now, I, I kind of live in this Toledo, Ohio area, and we actually used to have a high school called uh, Horace Mann High School, and it was kind of out by uh, Franklin Park Mall um, area, Secor area. Anyhow, Sorry, I digress. Um, so this Horace Mann and Henry Bernard, they said that with schooling, one could create good citizens, unite society, and prevent crime and poverty. Well, I actually agree as a teacher. Uh, free public education at the elementary level was uh, made available for all American children by the end of the 19th century. So, finally got there. Um, now kind of getting out of public school and going to some college uh, education as well here. Up until 1833, colleges were mostly for men um, and never really integrated uh, the sexes. All right, then, obviously in 1833, we have the Oberlin College. Um, and this was the first to admit both sexes. And um, furthering here, uh, by 1862, Mary Jane Patterson became the first African-American woman to receive a bachelor's degree in the United States. All right, so moving away from education here, because heh, we're getting one as I speak. Ah, anyhow, um, we're going to be talking about uh, reforms with um, the, the poor and also the mentally ill. So reformers believed that they could improve the lives of the mentally ill, criminals, and just the poor in general by creating institutions that taught moral values. Um, up in this point in the time, a few mental hospitals did exist, but mostly mentally ill people were placed in prisons or poorhouses without any type of treatment for their specific condition. So once again, kind of focusing on some of these uh, reformers, Dorothea Dix was one of the most effective um, uh, female reformers trying to help out the mentally uh, ill. She spent 18 months visiting jails and poorhouses uh, throughout, the ma throughout Massachusetts. Uh, she told lawmakers that the mentally ill were kept in cages, closets, cellars, stalls, and even pens, chained, naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. 
And, you know, this is obviously something I'm talking about on an audio podcast, so you can't see the pictures, but I do have some pictures of some of this, and people were literally chained to chairs with, like, pots kind of dangling underneath them so they could, you know, their waist could go out. But uh, this was, no one should be treated like this kind of thing. So um, I think it was just kind of, I'm hoping, kind of looking back on it, it was kind of a lack of education. They didn't know how to treat people effectively, and that's where this Dorothea Dix comes in. She emphasized that we need to offer rehabilitation um, and, and, you know, the, the improper treatment to restore the mentally ill to a useful and productive place within society. And eventually her efforts resulted in more than 100 hospitals across, um, uh, across the nation, basically, for the mentally ill. And there's one kind of local here, I guess. It's called The Ridges in Athens, Ohio. It's got some spooky history, if that's something you're interested in. Um, so, anyhow, um, more work with uh, kind of the poor uh, moving away from mentally ill, but just the poor in general. Reformers wanted to work to change laws that allowed the poor to be auctioned off for work. Um, so, just to make sure you understood me there, right? There's laws that said, okay, this person doesn't have enough money. They're not contributing enough to society. Let's auction them off for work. So it's like, here, I have this person here. Uh, we're going to sell them off to the highest bidder to do some work for your company because they're so poor they need anything they can get. So let's sell them $5 here, $5 here, $6, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $7, $
figure out what's going on. He felt that businesses were okay to operate, but they needed to be checked to some extent. He distrusted wealthy businessmen and dissolved 40 monopolistic corporations and got the nickname as Trustbuster. And just to kind of give you an idea of that monopolistic word that I talked about, um, that is basically means monopoly. And so a monopoly, also known as a trust, uh, a term for firms with large market share or lack of what is perceived as fair competition. So basically this business is so big that no other business can compete with them. They just can't. Um, they're too strong. Uh, they can afford to sell products at a loss where other companies have to make a profit. So they sometimes will intentionally lower prices to um, hurt other little companies so they can't compete in the market. So, you know, bottom line, a company has gotten so big, no other companies can compete with them. So, for instance, uh, locally around here, movie prices are really expensive. Well, there's no competition, so why do they have to make prices easier on us? And if a new movie theater company opened up here in town, well, then I bet they would lower their prices. But since they don't have to, they won't. Uh, it's kind of like when you're driving, you see a whole bunch of gas stations on a quarter. Well, if there's if there's a whole bunch of gas stations, they all have to offer pretty competitive prices because if one lowers it, the other ones will probably lower it soon thereafter because they want to compete. But if the only company you can get gas from in town, you know, there's just one, well, then shoot, they can charge whatever they want because they're the only place you can get gas. And guess what? We need gas. So kind of give you some modern day examples. Microsoft was considered a... Um, monopoly for a while, but then some other market share with Apple and whatnot, so no longer. AT&T was, in 1984, considered a monopoly and got broken up into smaller companies. So, kind of neat. And, and building off of that AT&T, Alexander Graham Bell. Now, he is an example of maybe monopolies not being the worst of things. So, all right, we're all too young to understand this, but back in the day... There was all these different phone companies. And if you wanted to talk to people who had that phone company, you had to ha have that phone going to your house, but that phone could only call other people on that. For example, if you wanted to talk to people, it, it would be the equivalent today of having cell phones. Like if I want to talk to all my friends, I know what you're thinking. Huh, Mr. McCune has friends. I know, it's fictional. Okay, go with me. But if I wanted to talk to all my friends who had Sprint phones, I would have to have a Sprint cell phone in my pocket. Then if I wanted to talk to all the people who had AT&T, I had to have another phone, an AT&T phone. Then I want to talk to my Verizon friends, I had to have a Verizon friend, uh, phone. So I had to have all these different phones to talk to people. Well, people's houses had all these different phone lines going to them to talk to all these different people. So when he started gaining power and control, he started buying all these different companies and just said, look, all the phone lines will, will go over the same phone line. That way, people don't have to buy all these different ones. So he created a monopoly, and we had, to, we had to get rid of it. But it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It standardized all the phone lines. So that was a good thing. And also, just a little fun tidbit about Alexander Graham Bell. When he came up with the phone, he was hoping that when people would answer the phone, they would not say hello. He hoped that the greeting would be ahoy hoy. So next time the phone rings, answer ahoy hoy. You probably won't, will you? So anyhow, um, just kind of going along with that whole idea of being against monopolies or trusts as they were. Um, in 1890, 
the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed. And I'm going to give you the kind of the quote-unquote from the act. The act provides every contract, combination in the form of trust or otherwise, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations is declared to be illegal. All right, the basically, you can't have one big company that controls everything. If it gets too big, it won't allow for competition. So they have, this basically means they have the means to drive the little guy out of business. Furthermore, the act also provides... Every person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize or combine or conspire with any other person or persons to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations shall be deemed guilty of a felony. The act put responsibility upon government attorneys and district courts to pursue and investigate trust companies and organizations suspected, suspected uh, of violating the act. I almost did it. Okay, basically, the act made it illegal by law to be in a monopoly. So if you're having a monopoly, that's bad. We'll shut you down. Okay, that's the Sherman Antitrust Act. All right, let's get into some other things that were kind of, you know, changing during this time, the urban reform. Well, because of all the efforts of these people, we saw the standard of living went up. And the definition of what the standard of living is, the quality and quantity of goods and services available to people and how they are distributed within a population. All right, basically think of it like this. All right, I have access to um, my own house. I can get a new car. I can get a really nice washer and dryer, a TV, computer, microwave, refrigerator, all these kinds of things. Okay, so these goods are available to everyone within our society, okay? So that's a good plus for standard of living. But the thing that has to coincide with it is, are all of these goods and really nice things only for a few people or does everyone have access to them and everyone own them? So if just one person in town had a car and everyone else had bicycles, well, the standard of living's really good for that one person, but the overall or the average of our standard of living not so good. So that's a big difference right there. Think of it kind of like North Korea. So we got, you know, crazy leader over there who has all kinds of nice things for himself, but this general people really don't have too much for themselves. So the standard of living over there is really low, but if it's just him, his standard of living is really high. So anyhow, during this time of urban reform and trying to help out the poor and getting more jobs for people and all these kind of things, um, also, industrialization unit, uh, the manufacturing goods more efficiently helped to lower the prices. Basically, it made items that were luxury items previously easy attain easily attainable by all people. So because of that, the standard of living went up during this time. So living in America, everyone was living a much better life for the most part. So that's a good thing. The standard of living during this time went up. And with people buying more items and spending more buying these items, money went into the economy. People had, you know, companies had to hire more people and we saw economic growth. So a lot of jobs were created during this time. Um, however, most of these jobs were unskilled labor. Um, so that's not necessarily helping out some of the higher kind of service jobs and stuff. And this kind of led to inequality. Many jobs paid very little and people found themselves stuck in these dead-end jobs and lived in these kind of bad tenements that we've talked about before. Now, 
like I said, some people did get money from this, and you know there was inequality. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. But on average, life in America did get better, but we still do see this large inequality. And we're going to have to kind of deal with some of these poor working conditions. If you remember from our last unit, long hours, little pay, uh, had to live in company-owned villages. Anyone remember those kind of things that we talked about? The Pullman Village. Yeah, that's right, Pullman Village. I heard someone say it. Anyhow, um, terrible working conditions. It just wasn't very nice. So we need to find a way to kind of make things better for, um, for the people. So I'm going to pause there for just a moment and we'll come back with uh, how to help out some of these terrible conditions. So see you soon.